Welcome to the Augustine Institute show. You know, faith and reason go together. And I think a lot of people in the world think that Christianity is anti-science or anti-reason, and that's so far from the truth. We as Catholics know that faith and reason go together, but not only do faith and reason go together, but history and theology go together. Theology is about God, but in the Christian story, God enters into the story of man. His story, his story is man's story, but it's also God's story. God enters into history. And so tonight we're gonna to explore further the importance of history for our Catholic faith. I'm so excited to have you back, and I'm so excited to have our special guest, our professor here at the Augustine Institute of, of Scripture, Dr. Brant Petrie. He's a wonderful author. He's authored many, many books, both popular and deeply academic, on the question of Jesus, the Gospels, the New Testament, the Bible in general. And so we're going to pick up with a topic that we had before, Brant, because we were inundated with questions and people wanted more. And we talked a while ago about faith and history and the case for Jesus in your book, The Case for Jesus. There was just, we were inundated and flooded with questions that people have out there. And we want to continue taking people's questions on the historical Jesus and how history and how deep academic study actually validates and deepens our faith. And that's so important because I think people think that faith and reason or history and theology are antithetical, and they're not. No, that, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. I, I really appreciate what you said there because Christianity is fundamentally a historical religion, yeah. right? It's a, it's a religion that at its heart makes claims about the God of the universe doing something in time and space, at a particular place, uh, you know, in the town of Nazareth, under the reign of Caesar Augustus, like Luke's gospel yeah. so beautifully puts it in the story of Christmas. And I think that's one of the appeals, too, of Christianity. I mean, Christmas, Christmas and Easter, those two holidays that even secular people are often drawn to and interested yeah. in and celebrate, um, those, both of those holidays make historical claims about something that happened with a little child and then something that happened uh, with an empty tomb. I think you give us two great points of reference for yeah. this conversation, which we have not rehearsed no, yet. No, no, no. So, you know, Christmas and Easter. Let's just start with Easter because I think a lot of people, it became popular after the Enlightenment for Christians yeah. who were entering this age of reason and there was an embarrassment about, well, this tradition of the Middle Ages and faith. And we wanted reason. We, and, and there was this excitement and enthusiasm about reason. And people started to say, well, look, Christianity uh, can be meaningful, but it doesn't have to be historical or true. It's like a myth, and it's a beautiful myth. It's a beautiful story. And so Jesus didn't really physically rise from the dead, but Easter is about the meaning of victory over death and, and trying again and new beginnings. Jesus living in our hearts. Jesus yeah. is living in our hearts. He's yes. resurrected. So, he, you know, it's not that the tomb's empty and that he's risen. It's yeah. that it, it's meaningful in some practical way. Yeah, I, I, that makes me think, I'll never forget of a time when, um, back in the early 2000s, this is around 2004, right after that book was published by Dan Brown, The Da Vinci Code, you probably remember that pop thriller novel, oh, yeah. that um, as part of the book, it made the claim that Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene, right? And so there was all kinds of debates going on, you know, 
is this historically true? And of course it's not, there's no historical evidence for that. But at the very same time that that was going on, there was also an ossuary that was discovered with oh, the yeah. bones of this man named James, who was supposedly the brother of Jesus. And people started speculating about the tomb of Jesus. And I, I, there was this whole show, there were a panel of experts, you know, discussing, was the tomb empty? What's the truth about Jesus? And one of the experts said, who was a Christian, uh, said, well, if the bones of Jesus were discovered today, it wouldn't affect my faith. And I remember being shocked and thought, <laughs> well, with all due respect, it would affect the Christian faith <laughs> yeah. because if you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, any one of the New Testament writers, Christianity, the claim about the resurrection is a claim about something happening to a corpse. <laughs> like that's what yeah. Christian that's how earthy and real and historical Christianity is. The empty tomb is the sign that this Jesus not just that he's his soul is living forever uh, is living in heaven with God. That that could be said about any number of righteous people. But that his soul and his body have been reunited and are now that he will never die again and that a whole new creation has begun on that day, on that Easter Sunday. That's a historical claim as well as a theological one. It, and, and yeah, so, and it's so to, important yeah. for the Christians. So I'll just give an example or a, a point. From, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15. That's, if Christ isn't risen from the dead, we are the most pitiable, pitiable of all people. people That's right? exactly right. And our faith is in vain, and you're still, still in your, in your sins. sins. So you're not saved. That's exactly right. You can't right. be saved by an idea. That, that is exactly, that's well put. You should write that down. That's really good. <laughs> yes, you cannot be saved by an idea. You have to be saved by a person yeah. through an event, namely the passion, death, and resurrection of Christ. So for someone to say, well, you know, it doesn't really matter what happened on Easter Sunday, or it doesn't matter what happened to Jesus' body. When a person says something like that, it just shows me that they fundamentally don't understand Christianity. Mm. And they don't, they certainly don't understand the New Testament. Because no. no. every one of the New Testament authors is making a historical claim when they claim that Jesus of Nazareth not only was crucified under Pontius Pilate, this historical figure, we say that in the Creed, another yeah. good example. Yeah, that's right? a great example. I, I, we don't just say he was crucified. We say he was crucified under, under Pontius, Pontius Pilate. Pilate. This Anchoring Roman, it in an in event history, in history. That's right. This Roman procreator, who we have archaeological yeah. as well as historical evidence for his existence, that he died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Let me tell you what, uh, here's a question, and before you answer it, I want to give the text uh, out this. Well, let me actually just tell you. We want you to join the conversation. Feel free to text us your questions. So our text line where you can text a question for us and join the conversation is 720-650-0100. So we want you to join, submit your questions uh, on faith and history. Yeah. That's what we want to do. And it's really at the heart of the mission of the Augustine Institute is to use reason yeah. to explore and expand and, and defend the faith. And that's what we're all about here. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing. Well, here's the thing. I think a lot of people think in the popular liberal Christianity that developed after the Enlightenment, mm -hmm. that Christianity is really about good advice, yeah. about how to be good and nice and kind mm -hmm. and likable versus good news, which is about mm -hmm. what God has done in history that's changed the world and is an invitation for us to change our lives. Wow, that's a great point, uh, especially when I think about, as you know, the fact that that term, good news, was actually used in ancient uh, Greek and Roman writings. I've, there's one ancient inscription that uses the same word, Aeoangelion, the good news, to describe the birth of the Roman emperor because he would be the savior for the empire. So th what the Christians are doing when they take that language, they're using the language of the Old Testament, which Isaiah talks about the good news of what God would do, but they're also using the, the language that ancient Romans would have associated mm -hmm. with 
actual historical figures, whether it's the birth of the emperor or uh, other figures, to describe what, has, what God has done in Jesus Christ. It's not just good advice. Although there is lots of good, Jesus does give lots of good advice, right? I mean, the Sermon yeah. on the Mount is full of great moral teaching, but you can't reduce Christianity to just the moral message, to just the moral teaching, because it really is about the good news of what God has done. And then our moral lives, our lives lived in response to that good news, to that gospel. Why do you think, and I know you know this historically, but why do you think from the first historical quest for Jesus that goes back to... Sure you know, the 19th century, mm-hmm. people wanted to paint Jesus as a teacher, but not as a king or as a savior or as a messiah. What's, why, why do you think modern biblical scholarship, but just modernity since the Enlightenment, just modern right. civilization has wanted to move towards painting Jesus in a narrow picture of a teacher only? Yes, okay, because it's safe. Because in the 19th century in particular, there was a rise of a philosophical outlook, a worldview called rationalism, right? Which said that the only things that are true are things that we can demonstrate to be true through reason and kind of the, you know, the examination of the material world. So philosophers like Kant. Philosophers like Kant uh, and others denying, in particular rationalists, denying that miracles are possible and that divine revelation is possible, right? So out of this emerges this worldview known as deism, where, well, where God exists, maybe he exists, right? But he doesn't do anything and he doesn't say anything. So he doesn't speak, there's no revelation, and he doesn't act, there are no miracles or supernatural events. Well, the problem with that kind of rationalistic, deistic outlook that's especially prevalent in Western Europe and in the, and in the United States, right, um, is that you can't reconcile that with the Bible. You look at the Gospels, there are miracles yeah. on every page. Jesus is going around mm. casting out demons, right? He's raising people from the dead. He's healing people who were born blind. He's walking on water. And they're making claims that the tomb is empty. They're making claims that his, that his corpse was brought back to life and will never die again in a new transformed uh, you know, uh, supernatural state. This is not the kind of thing you can reconcile with rationalism. So if you're a Christian professor, and it's the late 19th century and you're in Germany and this philosophy of rationalism and deism is very popular, the New Testament is an embarrassment, Yeah. right? You can't be respected as an intellectual if you believe those kind of things in that intellectual environment. So what happens is skeptical scholars or, and, and, and rationalistic scholars begin to, pick, to depict Jesus as merely a moral teacher, because everyone can like that. You so can get you, behind the that. The frame is just to his sayings. That's right. You and re- to certain sayings, and but not his deeds. That's exactly right. So it's a way There's of- an American it, president who did a there collection There was, that's right. There of, was an American- of Jesus. I think, did, didn't Jefferson publish his own Bible? I believe it was called the Thomas Jefferson Bible. And he cut out all the miracles. Yep. And just left the moral teachings of Jesus. And that's a perfect example of the the- creating Jesus in your own image, yeah. right? So I'm a 19th century rationalist, so I'm gonna make Jesus into just a good teacher. A first century right. rationalist. A first century <laughs> rationalist, yeah, there you go. So, um, and, and not to be, I'm not trying to be you know, uh, dismissive of it. I, it's understandable on some levels, but it's just historically yeah. incredible. That's the problem. See, his, doing solid history means you can't pick and choose yeah. which elements of these biographies you get to 
choose as true and which you reject. You can't have an arbitrary selection process where you pick the parts of the gospel that you like and then just dismiss the other parts for no solid historical reason. That, and, that, yeah. that integrity that you have to look at the whole, That's exactly which right. is the key to integrity, is really important. And I love uh, Nate from Canada. Yeah. And I love we get a lot of great Canadians who watch the program. So we're, I'm Cajun, so my ancestors are from Nova Scotia, so go Canada. Right? <laughs> All right. So Nate asked a great question. He's like, how, how can you convince someone to treat the Bible with the same standards applied to other historical documents? <sighs> That's a tough one. It's, it's very interesting if you watch scholarship, skeptical scholarship in the 19th and 20th centuries in particular, they will frequently apply one set of standards for ancient Greco-Roman writers like Herodotus or Thucydides or Suetonius' Lives of the Caesars or Plutarch, and then a completely different standard when it comes to the New Testament writings, right, um, in which they'll be credulous and reasonable toward claims that are made in those ancient Greek and, and Roman writers, but then very skeptical yeah. and very demanding and set the bar extremely high, if not impossibly high, when it comes to New Testament writers. In fact, over and over, ago, you, I've seen, over and over again, I've seen this on you know, specials on like the History Channel or Discovery Channel that often be from a kind of skeptical, secular perspective. They'll say, well, the only evidence for this is in the Bible. And as a historian, I'm thinking, yeah, but that's evidence, that's right? Evidence. Like, in other words, that's historical. Yeah, this is his, the Bible Real actually are ancient ancient documents in Greek and Hebrew that give us ancient claims and ancient evidence about things that happened. And so you can't simply dismiss it because it's in the Bible, although that works, right, in a secular context, because the Bible is a religious document. The Bible is a, a faith document. So we don't have to take it as seriously when it makes historical claims. But that's not consistent. And I try to be consistent as a historian. I want to look at all the evidence right, and try to judge it from the perspective of reason as well as faith, but also using my reason. And yeah, the reality so, is those kind of portraits of Jesus as just a good teacher are not historically reasonable. It reminds me, you know, we talked before about the importance of eyewitness testimony. We talked a little yeah. about that with the Gospels. But let's just look at the, you know, if, if Matthew is telling us the story of, of Jesus and John yeah. and then Mark and Luke, who they heard from other eyewitnesses, right. But the early Christians suffer a great deal. They're not making money. No. Uh, they're actually dying based on this eyewitness testimony. So that, that was always seen by people like Origen as one of the great proofs that, that we could trust the testimony of those who testify yeah. to Jesus in the Bible because they were willing to suffer and die. So let's just use Peter as an example. Mark's gospel claims to be the preaching and teaching of Peter, right? right? And we hear about Peter throughout Acts of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. Well, if if Peter's telling the truth, yeah. then what happened to Jesus is that he rose from the dead, and he, he was an eyewitness to that. If the option is that Peter is lying, right. and so the question would be, well, what, let's look, look at the options of Peter as a credible eyewitness. Great. What would you say as a historian? I mean, he could be making this up, right. or he could be deluded. He could be deluded. Or what he's saying really actually happened. Yeah. And one of the motives for believing that it actually happened, there are two motives that I would point to. First, this is important. Peter's not just an eyewitness. I could be an eyewitness to a car accident and not know who was in the car or not know exactly you know, the details. What color was the car? Well, I think it was blue, but maybe it was teal. I don't know. Peter wasn't just an eyewitness. He was a student of Jesus, the rabbi, for three years. 
He traveled with him, listening to him teach and preach over and over and over again, town after time. He ate with him. He drank with him. He lived with him. He didn't just go to classes on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for 55 minutes, right? This was an ancient Jewish student. So his memories of Jesus' words and actions are the memories, what scholars call this skilled memory. It's trained memory. The rabbis would train their students. So when Peter's testimony is preserved in Mark's gospel, as the ancient Christians tell us, we're getting the testimony and the memories of an eyewitness who was also a student and a friend and a companion. And so when that same person tells us that I went to that tomb and it was empty on Easter morning and everyone else, all the other students are saying the same thing, that's gonna have to give you pause. How do we judge this? And then the second thing is that same student, Peter, as you know, full well, ends up going to Rome and eventually is crucified upside down for the sake of the truth of what he is proclaiming about the life, the death, and the resurrection of his master, of Jesus of Nazareth. You know, to me, the fact that most of the apostles die, to me, is the seal of approval. To me, that's That's the greatest evidence that their accounts in the New Testament are true because if, if they're doing this for self-gain, and, and, and there's people who start a religious cult or you know, sure. other major religions, yeah. who people who gained yeah, yeah, yeah. personally yeah. wealth, fame, power, exploitation, and we don't see Peter gaining or Paul, they actually lose, they lose. and lose and lose and lose and over give and up. Over and over again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, they become despoiled and, and impoverished and they're working in toil, and then they die. And so yeah, if you're backing the Christian you team, it looks like you're not going to win the World Series. I mean, they, they, they lose over and over again, but that's how they win. Exactly. Why but would they do that if they knew what they're saying was false? Was false, that's right. That's exactly right. That's a great point. Although, you know what else? I would point to another, another motive of credibility for mm-hmm. believing their testimony. Uh, I bring this up in my book, The Case for Jesus. It's worth looking at um, because it's one of the main arguments the Christians also gave. It's not just the sincerity of the apostles. It's the fulfillment of prophecy. Because one of the things that first century Jews like Peter and James and John and Paul would have known is that in the prophets in the Old Testament, over and over again, the prophets say that in the age of salvation, the pagans, the Gentile nations, the non-Jewish nations of the world are going to begin to worship the God of Abraham, Isaac. Now, it's hard to fake that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, the, and, and so the prophets are saying that for centuries, from the 8th century all the way up to the time of Christ. And then something happens. After Jesus of Nazareth dies and rises again, and Peter and the disciples begin proclaiming that, the pagan nations who have been worshiping animals and, and yeah. different deities and gods and goddesses for centuries begin converting one after one, city after city, town after town, and they start worshiping the God of the Jews. How do you explain that that happens just when Jesus of Nazareth And not just that it happens as a, you know, socio-religious event, but that Jews predicted that hundreds of years, years before, before it ever could happen. So Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 2, the nations will come to Mount Zion. That's exactly and right. To hear the Torah, right? And you know, and the, the the servant of the Lord, and I, later in Isaiah, you know, uh, he will be a light to the nations. Yep. And so exactly, and he'll bring a law to the nations. They'll begin obeying a, a new Torah and, and yeah. have a new covenant. Or Psalm 22, all generations amongst all the nations will come and give thanks to God for his servant who's del- been delivered. That's exactly right. So, uh, so the idea that yeah. the Jews were this minority people right. in the ancient world who are Very conquered small. one after Earth. another nation, uh, and that the, yet those prophets, during the time of their demise and being conquered, right. are saying someday all the nations are going to worship the God of Israel. 
and the fact that that happened after the resurrection of Jesus Nazareth is a historical fact. Yeah. So my question to you is, explain it. How do you explain the fact that the Gentiles began to convert only after Jesus yeah. of Nazareth lived his public ministry, died, and was crucified, and then rose again. Is that a coincidence? Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Well, Augustine didn't think it was. You know, in the city of God, when (laughs) he's dealing with skeptical Romans. That's right. This is one of his biggest arguments that he puts down. Uh, It's one of the big stakes in the ground, because Augustine can say, look, look at... Look at history. And Exactly. And I think of, you know, he's referring to things like Daniel's prophecy, where you have the statue, which represents pagan idols, yep. being crushed by a stone cut out by no human hand. And, and then there's a small hill or a small rock that becomes a great mountain. And that's all, as you know, imagery of Mount Zion, mm-hmm. which is, represents monotheism, is going to destroy idolatry. That's and right. what happens, Augustine says, look at Rome. Idolatry <laughs> is done. Yes. Who could have imagined that No happening? one could have imagined that in 30 AD. No one. And but yet, Daniel prophesied it. Daniel Isaiah prophesied, prophesied it, it, and then it happened. So the, yeah. the argument from prophecy, which, by the way, in Vatican I, the first That's Vatican Council, at the, the end of, of the 19th century, when all of that rationalism and deism mm. we were talking about earlier, yeah. when that was all going on, Vatican I responded by saying one of the principal motives of credibility for believing the truth of the gospel is the argument from prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy. Or as Fulton Sheen put it once in, in his book, The Life of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth is the only leader of a world religion who was ever pre-announced. That's, in other words, yeah. there are no prophecies of Buddha, no prophecies of Muhammad that they fulfilled, but we got prophecies that Jesus fulfills eight centuries in it, you know, from eight centuries before him, seven centuries, five centuries, and prophecies from the Jewish scriptures. So when you bring that together with the sincerity of Peter and the other apostles, it's extremely reasonable yeah. to believe in the truth of Christianity. I love how the Lord even says this in Isaiah, you know, in, in chapter 42 and other places, he says, I am he who says a thing before it, before it happens. happens. Before it you happens. Know, and, that, and God's saying, this, this proves that I am the one true God. And it shows that history, in contrast to what I think it was Twain said, is not one, one darn thing after another, he might have said yeah. it a little differently, yeah. but rather part of God's providential plan. Yeah. That's why it's so important to read the New Testament in light of the old. Well, this gets back to the, the theme I was sharing with the people before, and that is the more we actually study history and do true, authentic, critical scholarship, the more our faith is validated and our own personal faith grows. I know, look, you know, you've studied, and, and, and Monica asked the question, are you a historian or are you a theologian? Oh. And I love that question. Are you, do you consider yourself either one or both? The answer to that question is yes. I love it. <laughs> I'm exactly. a historian and a theologian. And I don't think people understand, to, to get a, a doctorate in biblical studies, right, yeah. you have to study, you know, Greek, Hebrew, yes. Yes. ancient Dame, languages, archaeology, textual yep. studies. That's right. In Notre Dame, we had to do four ancient languages and two modern languages. Yeah. And uh, we did archaeology, my wife and I, when I was at Vanderbilt. You have to study the tools of history because yeah. the New Testament and the Old Testament are books produced in a particular historical climate, in particular yeah. languages. But as a good Catholic Bible scholar, you also have to study theology. Right. You have to read the ancient Christian writings of Augustine and Jerome and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and just as broadly as you can study, uh, mm-hmm. begin to understand the historical and theological context. Because the reality is, um, is that history is not opposed to theology. History is the road that leads to theology yeah. when you begin to study it 
from the uh, when you study it in its integrity, in its wholeness, because all of these things we're talking about, these are all historical events, historical realities, but they point to a super historical uh, theological truth. Well, you know, one of the questions that uh, Michael had for us was, you know, there are certain things, there are certain parallels with certain ancient mythologies yeah, yeah. with the Christian story. Sure. And yeah. so, you know, is, is Christianity just then a sister to these other myths and therefore another myth? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. That yeah. was one of the first questions that the Christians were presented with as the gospel began to spread. And I would encourage him to read Justin Martyr's mm. book called The First Apology. Now, in this book, Justin Martyr, he was a second century Christian writer. Um, he's not apologizing for Christianity. <laughs> yeah, That's exactly. not what it means. Apologetics it's, means to, uh, uh, you know. It's a reasoned defense. Reasoned defense of the right, faith. Right, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's, it's a, a reasoned, literary genre in yeah, the ancient it's, world. It's a literary genre in the ancient world called an apologia. And what Justin is doing is giving a reasonable explanation for pagans who had been hearing things about Christianity or who were criticizing Christianity. And Justin has, Martyr has a whole section there on the parallels between Christian religions and pagan myths and pagan religions. And it's a fascinating, uh, it's a fascinating treatise. And one of the things he says, and this is gonna be difficult for modern ears, but this is a standard answer in ancient Christianity. Um, Justin Martyr points to the fact that in the Bible, uh, for example, the writers of St. Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, Paul says that what the pagans sacrifice to their gods and goddesses, they sacrifice to demons, yeah. right? So from an ancient biblical worldview, the visible world is not the only thing you see. There are invisible angelic powers at work, and there are holy angels, and there are unholy angels. And one of the things that Justin shows, he makes the case that some of these parallels between not just pagan religions and Christianity, but pagan religions and Judaism can be explained by the fact that these pagan religions, especially the cultic ones, the sacrificial ones, are, shall we say, they're not the, just the creations of men. They are actually being animated and motivated by angelic powers who seek human worship, right? right? And who also mimic, they can't create anything new. It's like a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. A counter, it's just a like counter, a counterfeit, a counterfeit dollar bill. has to be as close to the real as possible. That's exactly right. So he actually turns the argument around and yeah. he says these pagan myths bear witness to the fact mm. that the Christianity is true, but you've all been led astray. And this is, this is the actual truth, right? That's being fulfilled. You'll see partial glimpses of it in these other religions. He'll also say you'll see glimpses of truth in some of the philosophers like Socrates, but the fullness of that truth is found in Christianity because the devil, Satan, right? Can't create something new. He can only mimic. And that mimicry leads people astray. It presents a scandal. Uh, one other thing, can I just, one sure, thing, sure, real absolutely. short. Uh, lots of the myths, the parallels that people will bring up um, as being similar to Christianity and seeming to undermine it actually come from the second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth centuries. After Christianity They actually been come after Christianity yep. has been a while for a while, around for a while, and pagan writers begin telling their stories in ways that actually mimic the Christian story and because they're trying to appeal to pagans yep. to keep coming to the temples and the cults. So it's a lot of times people are irresponsible with the way they use those parallels. Similarity is such a dangerous thing. It is a dangerous because, you thing. Know, I think of you know a, a cloud right. and a watermelon are 99 point something percent similar, right. but they're different. But they're different, that's exactly right. And, right? So, and so the idea that a myth has some, simil some similarities, and usually we're at the 0.1% now, That's right. Uh, with Christianity means that they're of the same ilk or the same. Perfect example, like uh, the, there will be examples of uh, sometimes 
secular critics will say, well, there are other examples of virgin births yeah. from these pagan myths. Well, if you read them carefully, you'll say, you'll notice, yes, there's a God and, and there's a human, yeah. but it's not a virginal conception that's taking place. Yeah. Um, and, and so, there, in other words, a lot of times the parallels fail precisely where they're meant to succeed, right? And so you don't want to exaggerate the similarities. You also don't want to uh, uh, ignore the, di the, the similarities. There are similarities, yep. but they can be explained, and it's important to understand them. And Christians have done this for centuries. You can yeah. read Eusebius and Justin Martyr. These are not new yeah. questions. It's no, like we didn't know about this. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it seems like one person once observed that, you know, so much of the Greco-Roman mythology and ancient mythologies are men trying to become gods. Mm. What's unique about Christianity is that God Yes. became man. No one could conceive that a right. God who is all-powerful and omnipotent would come down. That's exactly right. That's where you don't find a parallel. Philippians 2, right? Yes. That, that you know, yeah. Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be, be grasped at or yeah. exploited, but he emptied himself and became human. That's, you don't find that in the myths. No. That the humble God who yeah. becomes Servant. A, a servant and yeah. dies the death of a slave to to save his creatures. Mm -mm. That's Christianity, and yeah. that's a unique mention of the Christian I, gospel. I think that's so important and to me. That gives historical credibility to our faith because the, the, as you look at what Jesus did and suffered, if you're going to make up a mythology, you would not make up a God dying on a cross no, to save the world. No, not in the Roman world for no. sure. I mean, it's a it was shocking even for the Jews. Yes. who knew that God was going to come and save them, but what act, how he actually wins their salvation That's a, is it's a something. Scandal. It is a scandal. Yeah, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. It's a yeah. stumbling block yeah. because Deuteronomy says that a man's cursed if, he, if he's hung on a tree. So how could, a, how could we mm. be saved through a curse mm -hmm. was a real difficulty for early Jewish uh, listeners and you know, hearers of the gospel. You know, one of the things I want to invite everybody to do is, is Dr. Petrie has written a wonderful book called The Case for Jesus. We also have it as a Lexio Bible study uh, that's on form. The Augustine Institute publishes it. Yeah. You can get it at catholic.market for both the book, The Case for Jesus, as well as the Bible study program with videos and a wonderful workbook. If you want to dive deeper, if, if, if you're beginning to discover, oh my goodness, history and these historical questions are actually exciting me and inspiring my faith, I can tell you that's going to happen more and more as you do this. And so I want to invite you to uh, study this more, study history, use the Case for Jesus, Lexio Bible Study Series that we've published here at the Augusta Institute, or the book uh, as well, which is a great companion to that. Uh, study, and you're going to yeah. find that your faith is going to grow. And, uh, and don't be afraid. As Catholics, we're not afraid of history. Nope. We're not afraid of reason. In fact, we believe that the greater, the more you pursue these things, the stronger your faith is going to be. I know that's true in my case, and I know, Brant, that's how you feel yes. for you. It gives you the strength to, to proclaim the good news and share it with people with conviction. Yeah, that's so You don't important. have to be afraid. That's so important in yeah. this day and age right now where there's a lot of questions. We do have answers, and we need to start sharing it with the world so that they can come to faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, and know the joy of knowing Him. And that's that's the goal of our Christian faith. That's what we try to do here at the Augustine Institute. Our mission is to help Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. And so we're grateful for everybody who supports our mission, especially our Mission Circle members. By just giving a little bit monthly, uh, you can become a mission partner with us and help us to help Catholics understand, live, and share their faith. Thank you, and God bless and keep you. You can watch this show in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press 
with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, ebooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org. You can watch this show in video format by visiting form.org. Formed is an online Catholic streaming service created by the Augustan Institute and Ignatius Press, with award-winning studies and parish programs, inspiring audio content, movies, ebooks, and family-friendly kids programming. To support the mission of the Augustan Institute, please visit missioncircle.org.